So yesterday we had a speaker that came all the way to Ho from Hawaii to speak to us. Today we have a speaker who came all the way from Italy to speak to us. We're very pleased to have Ugo Perego. Perego? 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 I should know by now, but I always get confused. <laughs> so Ugo has a BS and MS in Health Sciences from Brigham Young University, Provo, Utah, and a PhD in Genetics and Biomecular Sciences from the University of Pavia. He's the director of the Rome Institute campus, the SNI coordinator for Central Italy and, and Malta, and a visiting scientist at the University of Pavia. He's lectured on population migrations, ancestry, forensics, and history. There's a lot more you can read and hear about him. He's eminently qualified, and he's my friend, Ugo Perego. It's good to be here. Um, always a little anxious when I come to Fair Mormon. You know, I, uh, I know you guys are a smart crowd, so I don't know. You should be condescending toward, or accommodating based on Ben word toward me. Um, I am very grateful for... Uh, um, what Ben had talked about. I don't know if that was purposely made it that way that I would come right after him. Um, the only request I asked was to speak on a Friday that I couldn't be here on Thursday. But he has created and done a tremendous job. In fact, I'm sorry for you that you have to listen to me because I think he would have done a much better job at addressing this topic than I can do. Um, ben, ben is really a, a smart cookie. Um, so, just want to tell you a little story that happened just a few weeks ago and uh, we are attending, we are here visiting from Italy with my family, we are attending a local family ward and the first Sunday we were there and they asked us to introduce ourselves, somebody came up to my wife and asked, uh, is, uh, is your husband some sort of kind of like famous LDS geneticist and, uh, and she looked at him and, uh, and she said, well based on what people write about him on the internet he's quite inf infamous. <laughs> And uh, so hopefully today I won't make myself more infamous by the things I'm going to share. I'm not definitely trying to um, change anybody's perspective and the thoughts I'm sharing is mostly my interpretation of things that the church has um, shared with us about this topic. Now my goal today is uh, um, to explain what the church believes about evolution and, and I hope you, re you fully appreciated what, what Ben has done in creating the right framework in, in scriptural interpretation, especially on the creation account. I will focus on uh, creation of man, particularly, um, or the evolution of man, uh, the origin of man. But uh, I'm doing this for a specific purpose. And uh, that purpose is uh, to tie it in with the second half of my presentation, which will be um, dealing with some issues that have to do with Book of Mormon and DNA, and that is um, many of the events that are um, supported by genetics with regard to the people in America predate the 6,000 years Adam, right? And so when uh, you come to uh, have some preconceived notion with the fact that uh, there could have been nothing or that the church is teaching you that there is nothing before 6,000 years ago, and then you tend to dismiss a lot of the genetic data that somehow helped clarify certain issues with regard to Book of Mormon and DNA studies. And so hopefully I will be able to connect them in a, in a way that makes sense to you today. Um, so a few things to ponder always. I like, uh, for those of you that have heard me speaking before, you, you're going to see and hear again some of this concept. But I learned as a teacher that repetition is a good thing. 
And, uh, and so science or religion, do we really have to make a choice between one or the other? Are they really uh, found uh, at the end of the same spectrum or they can coexist? Um, scientific method help understand how things are made versus um, why things are made and what is the purpose and how do we fit in that picture. I taught um, human biology for a couple of years at a college here in Utah and about a third of my curriculum of my, uh, the material that I would cover has to do with uh, evolution and I always started with this class because I'm in a, in, a, in a Utah context where there is a lot more um, <coughs> more religious people, more, more Bible readers, more uh, people attending seminaries and institutes and Sunday school and dealing with these things. I always told my students, you know, look, I'm teaching about evolution. I'm not preaching about it. You know, there are a lot of things we, we can um, understand and know, appreciate it and think about it, but we don't have um, gain a testimony of it and we'll be just fine. Now, in this context, it's very important to understand, uh, you know, what is that we believe about um, certain topics that have to deal with science, and what does the church believe about it? And uh, understand if uh, our approach to it is in line with the official teachings and doctrines of the church. Now, I know that a lot of church leaders have written or said things in the past regarding these topics, and our um, challenge is to understand which one of these things are official doctrines, official positions, and what other things are perhaps personal opinions. And so uh, when we get into uh, talking about creation or evolution, we always say, well, Joseph Field Smith said that, or Bruce R. McConkie said that, right? And, and we get into these debates, but what does the church teach us about it? What is the official position? And uh, does, the, does the church have an, uh, a saying on things like how old is the earth about... Uh, 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 biological evolution of man and, uh, and animals and, other, and everything that has been created. Uh, what about Book of Mormon geography or, or uh, Book of Mormon population dynamics where people here uh, in America before Lehi arrived and how long have they been here and how do we reconcile that with what we study in the Bible and so on. And so when we understand where the church stands with this, we um, probably can put ourselves and our mind a little bit more at ease and, um, and avoid contention to some degree, understanding that there is so much that we know and so much that we still don't know. So let's talk <coughs> about uh, evolution or uh, creation. Are they joined together or they are uh, against each other? And I love always to refer to this scripture in Doctrine and Covenants. This is uh, uh, the prophecy with regard of Christ's second coming and the big gathering that will take place in Adam on the Haman. And uh, we, among all the other things that will happen that day, the Lord is inviting us to a fireside. And it sounds to me that it's going to be a science fireside. And um, bring uh, your iPads, your notebooks, and you know, make sure you take a lot of notes. And, uh, and I don't think the Lord uh, likes to waste his time. I don't think that he's going to call upon us to tell us things we already know. Um, he talks about things that he's going to reveal. Yeah, verily I say unto you, in that day when the Lord shall come, he shall reveal all things, meaning things that we don't know, things that have been hidden, things that we don't understand. 
things which have been passed, and hidden things which no man knew, things of the earth by which he was made, and the purpose and the end thereof, things most precious, things that are above, and things that are beneath, things that are in the earth, and upon the earth, and in heaven. And uh, as I ponder on this question, uh, immediately, uh, on this statement, immediately the question came to me, is like, do, if, if we need to have the Lord explaining us how things were made, then that means that we do not have that information. And uh, we have Genesis, we have the temple account, but I think we need to put those things in the context of the fact that those sources are not going to tell us everything we need to know. And that the Lord will need us to explain things. So can we make good guesses about how things happen? Can we use science, personal inspiration, pondering, um, training in specific fields to um, draw conclusion or possibilities, assumption of how these things were made? Absolutely. You know, that's why God has given us a brain. Let's use it, right? Um, but can we impose on others this as absolute knowledge or absolute truth when the Lord himself say, wait for me to come and give it to you, right? So that's just kind of like the balance we always have to feel. And as a person, I try to always stay away from contention. You know, if I, I'm a bishop in my world. I'm a geneticist. And, uh, you know, I, I go to Sunday school and I hear funny things that I don't agree with. <laughs> but... There is no point in, uh, in creating contention, right? That's not what we're here for. We're there to feel the spirit. And we're there to give our very best uh, um, interpretation of the scriptures and the tools that are being given to us to teach them. And sometimes teachers follow the guidelines. Sometimes they don't. And maybe we focus more on teaching them to follow the guidelines rather to tell them that they're wrong. <coughs> Now, the church in 1909, you're all familiar with that, um, the, came out with a statement about the origin of man. It's an official first presidency statement, and I uh, still make it rounds around, and I believe this to be revelation and to be uh, coming from the Lord, um, from these people that were in, in charge of leading the church. Now, 1909 is a key date because uh, uh, it commemorates the 100-year birth of Charles Darwin, and um, a lot of people in uh, different venues were having some sort of uh, evolution revival um, based on, uh, on this celebration. And so there were concerns, my understanding is, uh, um, the, the, the historical contents of making this statement um, about what members could have, uh, how the, f the members felt about the whole concept of evolution versus um, things that were taught in the church. And so they, they felt it was necessary to make an official statement. And now, um, among all the things that are said here, uh, I love the fact that they talk about a spiritual evolution. Okay? I, uh, and the question I'm asking is, like, why in the church we are so okay with the fact that we can evolve spiritually, but we are not okay that physically we cannot do that, Right? Uh, why there should be is okay one way or the other. And on, on the other way, I'm also thinking of as we talk about being born as an infant from an earthly mother and an earthly father, we are not born as adults. Poor mothers, right? <laughs> so think about delivering an, an adult person, right? And so we start as a, 
a single cell organism and we evolve inside our mother wombs on a period of nine months and then when we are born we continue to evolve until adulthood and, uh, and the whole process you know is accelerated is fast but the reality is look at how a human beings come into place biologically you know um, could that happen in other ways under God divine guidance uh, over periods much longer before um, uh, Adam and Eve. And uh, because of this statement, and because to some degree the church tends sometimes to, uh, to say things but not to be too precise and too specific with regards to what they're trying to say, at least with, uh, that's what I get from this original statement that I saw from 1909, it was necessary to make a second statement connected to the first one, which is not as popular as the first one. This is also an official statement of the, of the church was published in the improvement, uh, in the improvement era the following year. And my understanding is that came as a, uh, additional inquiries that uh, members of the church sent to the first presidency asking is your 1909 statements, that's the question, is a statement against biological evolution. Are we say that Adam and Eve were created 6,000 years ago? That's the question. And in answer to that question, the first presidency replied in this way. And I color coded because they, they are proposing three possibilities and choosing none of them. All right? And when, when the church does that to me, I interpret it in a way we don't know and we're leaving the doors open to all these possibilities or maybe even others. We are waiting for the gathering on Adam on the Hammond just as well as the whole church membership is. And maybe some prophets from time to time have been shown these things, we know that, and have been commanded to not reveal this um, to, the general, to the general membership, and that's okay too. So there could be people, even among us today, that gather right, but the Lord is expecting them to keep them to themselves and not um, sharing this as an official church position. So the first, po the first um, option here actually seems to me that includes the possibility very much that uh, um, evolution took place within God's design of the creation. Now, the creation accounts we have are in the Genesis, Moses, Abraham, and the temple, and Ben has done a great job explaining to you how these need to be read and understood. And so I'm not going to uh, take any time here on this one. Um, also spoke about the concept of day, you know, how day means actual a real day for poetry, literature, literary um, meanings. But, you know, here I always love to use this quote by Bruce R. McConkie, which is considered a more conservative individual when it comes to the creation, and yet he himself understands that uh, we don't have to understand a day to be 24 hours, although that is how we're going to read it. Okay, so he says that, that's how we read it, that is how the writer of Genesis wants us to understand it, but the reality is the, the true meaning is that God took whatever time he needed to make what he did and what he made, and he didn't stop one day and with one thing and then he started the next day with a new thing. But these periods of creation, these things could have been created or evolved simultaneously and uh, um, reached their fullness or their completeness at different time as needed. Um, I remember a number of years ago when I was working here in Salt Lake City, I was asked to go to the airport and um, we were having a collaboration with a university in China um, and uh, one of their colleagues was uh, that we didn't know we weren't working with but was somebody important in China with regard of uh, 
genetic uh, um, uh, research. And so they ask us, you know, is there a possibility for you that you're in Utah to go and pick him up at the airport and uh, be cordial and, uh, and hospitable with him and um, showing him around? And so we, we, we agree. And I was sent to do that, to um, pick him up. And as we were driving, uh, he, he told me that he did his PhD and his postdoc here in the United States. So he was totally fluent in English, and he was also very familiar with uh, American culture and with Utah culture because his wife, while he was doing his PhD, was taking the missionary lessons to learn English. <laughs> she was interested in the gospel, but she wanted to learn English. And so she met with missionaries for two years, I think, and uh, probably setting up a lot of hopes in many missionaries, writing home, we're teaching this great Chinese lady, she's very interested, you know, and then all she was, was that she wanted to learn English. But besides this confession, and the fact that he knew and was familiar with Mormon culture, and the fact that Utah is a very religious state compared to, to other places in the world, um, he was puzzled by the fact that uh, uh, how could we live in the 21st century with everything we know with regard of science and how things are made and still hold on to things like uh, the Old Testament, right? Uh, he, he couldn't reconcile that. And uh, all I had to do was, you know, look, uh, I think Genesis is a story. It's not science, but it's a story that is trying to teach us certain principles and we don't have to take a day, because it was very positive, how can God create the earth, you know, somebody created the earth in six days, right? And when in the moment I told him that these days could be any amount of time, and he looked at me, it's like, even billions of years? I was like, why not? We don't know, right? And his eyes just sparkle, right? Immediately, we turned down a wall, and it made it more easy for him, you know, to not think that we are all just like this, uh, stupid individuals that don't understand how things are happening. You know, that's, it was very condescending in his way to look over toward religious people. Now it wasn't, just because a wall was knocked down. In the fifth day of the creation, um, and we saw that to not be consistent in the order and so on, again because of the fact that they are mostly um, teachings about these things and not this is not a scientific textbook. Um, I love the fact that uh, in Abraham, um, explains how the water to bring forth life and not God. So it's God prepared the waters and the waters are, is the, um, are the one responsible to bring forth abundantly life of every kind. And on this subject, Unibli in his book Before Adam uh, basically say, you know, quoting on Abraham, not the, the future sense, the future tense, the waters are so treated that they will have the capacity, the uh, the capacity, the gods did not make wells on the spot, but arranged it so that in time they might appear, they created a potential. Now, Unibli is not speaking for the church. You know, the title of the, <laughs> the presentation is What Does the Church Believe About Evolution? And I'm not using Unibli as the spokesperson <laughs> for the church, so that's not a mistake. But the book of Abraham is scripture and is canonized, and we read it as the word of God, or at least that's what... Um, um, uh, we, we think and believe it is. And so it seems to me that one way to read that is the way that Unibli uh, um, later on explained it. Now, <coughs> for those of you that have been through the temple endowment, and, and I'm not going to um, go in, in great details um, talking about that because I don't think it's a, 
uh, appropriate to do that, but you know that there is a, a question that is asked uh, to um, the Savior and to Adam by, by the Father, and that question is, you know, is man found on the earth? And uh, I, I wish I could go to the temple and just enjoy being at the temple sometimes, but I'm I, I always looking at the, the movies of the creation in a scientific context, and I can't help it, and I'm always trying to understand, you know, why do we have more horses than two, or, you know, are... Is the, is the grass dying or, you know, they're, they're eating, you know, so there is some life, some there. I don't know, I'm always like thinking what, what is going on really in there. But I know it's all imagery, but I'm trying also to, to see how that works with the old science. And it puzzled me that uh, Jehovah and Michael are um, asked to, by themselves, under Heavenly Father stewardship and instruction, to create everything even animals, okay? And yet, when it comes to the creation of man, Elohim, the father, has to intervene himself. It's the first time that he's actually taking a physical or, or um, uh, first-person participation. And um, physically, the Savior could create the body of Adam and Eve. What would be the difference? You know, we're made of the same chemical elements. We function pretty much the same ways. The organs, the blood system, the, the skeletal system, the brain, you know, they kind of all work about the same way. The DNA is the same. We, we share 50% of DNA with bananas, for heaven's sake, right? So uh, if you can create a banana, you can create a man. And uh, we share 98% of DNA with apes. You know, um, so if he can create an orango, why could he create a man? All you need to do is, just, you know, if you look at me, you know, I can shave it a little bit, you know, not, not even that much. But, and, and you got human. But, but here there is something the Heavenly Father has to do, and I think it's pretty obvious that uh, uh, the Savior in that, at that time could not do. And that was to give a spirit and put a spirit into a physical body. And so, um, as we look at that, and we see, we see that in the temple, um, something else comes to my mind, which is uh, the Egyptian nine-part tradition of what uh, um, constitutes a recipe for a human being. And, uh, and it says, you know, for, to be a human, you, to be a man, you need to have a physical body, you need to have a spirit, a shadow, a heart, a name, um, intelligence, and so on and so forth. You can read all of it on, on Wikipedia, so it must be true. But... Um, is actually a, a true tradition, but the point is, can you have uh, most of these elements, but let's say not a spirit, as a, as a spirit child of God in it, and still have some sort of functioning, living, uh, biological organism that looks like a man, but is not the man, right? Uh, can, you, can you do have, can you have that? I, you know, I don't know, but I think that's a, a good possibility. So now let's go into the, in the, into the church official position. Now, there was a couple statement that came out last year, um, and they were published in the New Era, and they were not signed by anybody, and they were in a section called To the Point, which is a, um, is a section that deals with, with, with topics, specific topics, but in a very short and concise way. This is the full article. You know, like, 
when I saw that there was an article called What Does the Church Believe About Dinosaurs on the, on the index, I immediately turned to that page, and then that was it. I was like, give me more, right? <laughs> why, why stopping? You, this is a good start, you know, continue on that. And uh, as I shared this with others in, in other settings, um, especially people that did not fully embrace uh, the fact of the possibility that could be anything more um, 6, year, uh, older than 6,000 years ago, or that there could be anything that has to do with evolution. Um, so people that are embracing fully creationism and excluding everything else, um, they dismiss this as saying, well, it is in the new era, it's not in the, in the enzyme, so it's not as official, <laughs> and it's not signed, therefore it's like if no one wrote it, right? And so no one said that. And I was like, okay. So I called the church uh, uh, general number, you know, and, uh, and I asked, can I talk with somebody about um, the, the church magazines? And they sent me to the, the, me to the, the subscription <laughs> uh, department. I was like, sorry, that's not who you want to talk. Sorry. I, I was like, I need to phrase my, my request better. Can I talk with those people that actually write stuff? <laughs> And the managing director for church magazines. And so I had a nice conversation and I asked him, I was very, you know, I told them who I was, I told them the experience I had by quoting these things, and I asked them, can you give me some background information? Who writes these things? Who approves them? And uh, is the new era some sort of second class source of information in the church, right? Uh, um, and, uh, and the answer was very clear. And he says, you know, all these things are written. By, um, we have a staff, they're approved by a curriculum committee and then sent to the general authority supervisors that are in charge of a publication. So everything is screened, is approved, and uh, if there ever is some sort of mistake, there is always a rat, a rat cor courage, right? There, there is some, some correction published later on, which it doesn't happen often, but it did happen in the past. And, uh, <clears throat> this has been now out for, since February 2016, so I think they are pretty comfortable with this statement. And it's like it goes on LDS.org, and um, the only difference is that uh, we, is, we target a younger group, a younger audience, 12 to 18, which I didn't want to say anything, but I was like, are they more receptive than adults? <laughs> Is that why we're hoping that we, we give up on the current generation and we're investing in the future one because we have no hope for, for all of us? We're inoculating, you know, with, like, with, uh, with all the other things. So, but, but read these words, you know, like uh, I tend to overanalyze things, but, you know, the way I'm reading this, you know, I mean, let's say, did dinosaurs live and die on this earth long before man came? Uh, came along, and, and the answer is there have been no revelation on this question, and the scientific, scientific evidence says yes. You can learn more about it by studying paleontology if you like, even at church on school. My very first evolution class I took at a BYU. Um, he, he's, he's basically saying, as a church, we, can, we don't have any supporting information. We can contribute to that knowledge. But science is doing something, and if you want to learn about it, go to science. Is science absolutely correct? Does it make mistakes? Do they have the full picture? I don't think this is what they're saying. They're just saying, if you want to know something about it, that is the best we got, right? And it's going to get better from here, right? And so we know more than we knew in the past. We will continue to learn more 
by relying on both uh, personal revelation, church revelation, and scientific method. The details of what happened on this planet before Adam and Eve aren't a huge doctrinal concern of ours. And if it is not for the church and for the brethren, why should it be for us individually? Meaning, it could be something we like to understand, but why do we have to be obsessed about it? Why do we have to stress out about it? Why do we have to impose our views and create contention on something that the church says, it's not a big deal, okay? We, we're not even going to deal with it at this point. And here is the key, you know, kind of ties with, with Ben just say, you know, um, and, and I invite you to read more of his stuff. It really has a lot of good stuff about these, these things uh, today um, in the future. But it says, the accounts of the creation in the scriptures are not meant to provide a literal scientific explanation of the specific processes, time periods of events involved. Don't take the creation account literal. Okay? And that is church official position right here. Then, as if that was not enough, in October, in the point, in the new era, there is another one of these articles, and I want you to know that they copy and paste them word for word in their entirety, including the pictures. Okay, there is nothing that I have added here. You know, in case you miss it, you're going to get to see it right now. This is October 2016 in the new era. What does the church believe about evolution? That's the title of the article. And again, it's very short. It's two slides. The church has no official position on the theory of evolution. Organic evolution or changes to species inherited traits over time is a matter for scientific study. It is not a matter for religious study. It is a matter for scientific study. It is the how. The why is a matter for religious studies. It's our theology. Why we have a creation. Why we have an earth. Why we have a body. Right? Why there was a fall. But how these things happen is a matter that science deals with it. We don't. And then again, repeats the same, the same sentence. Nothing has been revealed concerning evolution. Though the details of what happened on earth before Adam and Eve, including how their body were created, have not been revealed, our teachings regarding man's origins are clear and come from revelation. And if you read that quickly, it sounds like that they're either very confused, right? Because they're saying, well, we, we don't know how Adam and Eve were created, but we know how Adam and Eve were created, right? <laughs> and it's like, okay, and, you know, make up your mind because I'm following you here, right? But maybe they're talking about two different things. You know, maybe, as they say, we don't know the physical body has been created and we have no revelation about it. So you can say pretty much whatever you want about it and it could be just as true as wrong, you know? And the best things we have is the scientific approach. But we know where men come from or the purpose or the spiritual origin of it. That, that's how I'm reading it. In fact, if we continue with the same, um, this is the second part of this article. It's, again, it's the full text. Before we were born on earth, we were spirit children of heavenly parents with bodies in their image. This is a little clarification from like the... the previous accounts that we have where it's actually specifying that it's the spirit creating the image of God, not necessarily the physical body. Okay, I know that Joseph Smith had a first vision, but again, does that apply to uh, what Ben was teaching? Is that the way that they decide to present themselves to us so that we could understand 
their physical resemblances. I, I, I don't know any of that, but the point is, uh, here we're talking about the spirit being created in the image of God, and then God directed the creation of Adam and Eve, so uh, it's not uh, chaos, right? Did you say right? It's not a, a, a chaotic um, creation or revolution, but God is involved, things are happening because he was uh, in control. Um, God directed the creation of Adam and Eve, placed their spirit in their bodies. So that is why he had to come to the earth and do that. He's the only one that is the, could have done that at that time. We are all descendants of Adam and Eve, our first parents who were created in God's image. There were no spirit children of Heavenly Father on the earth before Adam and Eve were created. It's not saying there were no human-like individuals. It's saying there were spirit. So as you look at an, all the animal creation, all the, the, the creations of God, do horses or cows or, or dogs have spirits? And as, a, as a, our theology teaches, yes, they do. Are they children of our Father in heaven? No, they're not. We're the only one. And can God place one of his spirit children inside a physical body? And it happens every time somebody is conceived. At what point does a spirit enter the body? We don't know. That's not being revealed. But does it happen? And the answer is yes. Um, and, that's, and the answer is yes. That he's, uh, um, uh, he, he can do that. Okay? So in the few minutes that I have left, uh, I'd like to see, you know, now that we know that the church can accommodate or leave the door open for things that are older than 6,000 years, let's review a little bit about the, how that ties in with Book of Mormon. I'd like to take this to clarify and go on record for it. For, with regard of a couple of things uh, that are important. Remember, we have um, uh, in our cells, we have something called mitochondrion, and then in the mitochondria, we have mitochondrial DNA. We're going to see that, how that is used. We don't have a lot of time to go over that, but I wrote a lot, and I'm going to give you another um, reference for it if you want to read about it more. Then we have, uh, in addition to the mitochondrial DNA and the mitochondrion, we have nuclear DNA found in the nucleus of the cells. We have autosomal DNA, which is a chromosome from 1 to 22. And then we have sex chromosome, which is the 22 pairs of chromosome. And that includes the Y chromosome, which uh, um, it determines the gender male. We were all created as, um, with the potential to become a female without any intervention. And then uh, the presence of a Y chromosome turns a potential natural developing female into a male. Okay, this is how the biology works. And uh, we have features as males that are similar to females, you know, and uh, we don't use them, you know, like, uh, you know, our breasts, for example, you know, and uh, that is evidence that we kind of have, um, we were on the same path um, as they are. But then the Y chromosome comes in and changes stuff, and uh, it has uh, a use both mitochondrial DNA and Y chromosome and autosomal DNA with regard to study of populations. This is our tree right there, and um, we have the mitochondrial DNA, which is what I'm going to focus today because there have been some developments in the last uh, couple of years to help us understand issues with regard to those things that people are saying with, um, about the Book of Mormon. And then the Y chromosome follow the paternal line, and the autosomal DNA is the one that comes from all of our ancestors. And uh, when we look at mitochondrial DNA, we can create trees, we call phylogenetic trees, but they are like family trees that show how everybody is related in the world along their maternal line, and every one of these lineages is named after a specific letter, 
and uh, we're going to see a little bit more about that. And then you can link these branches through history to specific geographic areas and say, okay, we, have, we see more of a specific lineage in Africa and, and uh, more of another lineage in Europe and more of another lineage in Asia and, and then in the Americas and how we can then turn these things together uh, and understand that the, the expansions and the migrations that took place and um, based on mitochondrial DNA, based on Y chromosome, um, we, we, we believe uh, a, science that, a scientist that uh, men have been around for about 200,000 years, the, at least the, the, the um, Homo sapiens, we're talking about our species. And um, based on this, uh, uh, the age of these branches and the distribution around the world, then we can reconstruct these migration maps that indicates you know, how the continents were populated. And so uh, mitochondrial Eve, Y chromosome Adam, that's how they refer in science, came out of Africa, went into Southeast Asia, then into Europe, then into Eastern Asia, Oceania, and the American continent is the last one that's been colonized. And uh, that took place during the last ice age in the area that uh, used to connect the uh, um, Siberia um, northeast Siberia to Alaska, and that area was called Beringia, which is now replaced by a water body or a water strait called the Bering Strait. And all this happened about 15,000, 18,000 years ago. And, uh, and regardless of what anybody has said before in the church or outside the church, uh, scientific evidence is overwhelming that uh, uh, humans have been in the Americas for about that much time, about 15,000 years. And by the time um, we, we read the Book of Mormon and we read about people coming here, there were probably millions of uh, Asian-derived people that live into this, uh, uh, in the American double continent. This is supported by genomic data, Y chromosome data, so autosomal data, Y chromosome data, mitochondrial data, <coughs> archaeological data. Uh, we have uh, archaeological findings uh, that are carbon dating and, uh, and um, f found on both sides of, uh, um, uh, of the two continents. And nowadays they're actually doing some uh, uh, digging in uh, undersea in the, in the Bering Strait as well, see if we can find anything as well. The water is not as deep and they're getting soil samples to see if there is anything more we can learn about that. But one of the things we, we understand about... Um, uh, the water level rising and divided in two continents, and you actually have mammoths remain on the Aleutian Islands, right? And uh, so how did they get there if it wasn't that they were all connected at that time? So similarly, uh, humans came in about that time. Now, that is the, the, the context. So we know there were people here. Um, John Sorenson wrote about it when he wrote an article, you know, when the, when the Lehi came here, were there other people, you know, uh, that was before the DNA era. Uh, we accept that there were other people in the Americas, and then Lehi and his parties arrived and found those people already here. Um, in that context, uh, I'd like to point out a few changes that have been made to the Gospel Topic essay on the Book of Mormon. These changes have been made over the last couple of months. So, and there are small changes, but meaningful changes. And when uh, um, I was uh, asked to work on this together with other uh, scientists for the church, 
I uh, told them, it's like, you, look, you can probably write an article on black and the priesthood and polygamy, and that will be good for the next 20 years. But when you write a science, an article that deals with science, you cannot leave references there that are five, ten years old and not touch it because science discovers new things and changes uh, things. So we, we kind of have to agree to uh, make updates. So the original one was published, I believe, 2013, 2014, but already I felt like there was a need to clarify a couple of things. So there are three things that changed. They're all in the, they're slightly changing the text to clarify, but mostly are in the references. So reference number two, point out to an article that I wrote that is a lot longer and is found in the interpreter. Um, so it's about 40 pages long compared to the shorter article that is uh, being summarizing um, uh, for the gospel topic. Second change has to do with this statement, which I think the church is trying to be very, very clear and more vocal about it. Um, in uh, reference number C six, they added this sentence. They say, though there are several plausible hypotheses regarding the geographic location of the Book of, Mor- of, Book of Mormon events, the church takes no official position except that events occur in the Americas, okay? The church is not taking a position on geography, so neither should you, right? I mean, have your favorite thing, but don't tell others that they're wrong, okay? Don't tell others that you are bad members if you don't accept, they don't accept your geographic model because the church is taking no position on it. That is found also in the seminary manual that is given to our youth, again, the church is investing on the youth and is giving up on us. Get the message, right? <laughs> they are receptive. They are listening. Even uh, a few days ago, talking about the new videos that the church is making uh, with regard of the Book of Mormon, um, they had an article in the Desert News, which is owned by the church, and uh, it says it's not like the movie that was made on the Book of Mormon, nor will Book of Mormon videos give a nod to location theories either. Right? They're trying to keep it as natural as possible. Um, so very clear message about stay away from it uh, or like it, but don't fight over it. Okay? F- uh, Reference 15 has a new article that came out after the original um, Book of Mormon and DNA Studies um, essay was published. And this article is called Does Mitochondrial Haplogroup X indicate ancient transatlantic migration to the Americas, a critical revaluation. Now, why this is relevant is because there was a video that came out last year about, this is the title of the video, and I'm not going to say, you know, uh, anything about any theories. I, I have uh, my ideas, but I don't have a preferred theory, um, preferred theory. And with regard to the North American model, you know, the Heartlander model, um, you know, they might even be right to me for what it matters to me. They might even be correct. They might get it right, okay? But if they're using DNA as an evidence for them, <coughs> and, and then eventually that we will find out that they were right, it's pure luck, right? Because there is no genetic evidence for it, okay? And I will spend the, rest, the, 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 the remaining time, the last three minutes, to talk about that. But the video, the title of the video that went viral and was shared on Facebook, like uh, I, I would get people send me this video about five or six times a day and say, hey, have you seen that? Have you seen that? I was like, yeah, I did. Okay, and I had a copy and paste message for everybody. And, um, but that's the title. That's the title of the video, DNA versus Book of Mormon, incredible in uh, 
this is a copy and paste from YouTube. So that's in capital letter, incredible new evidence. So Rod Meldrum is explaining to him why to him that is, is such a strong evidence. And he uses his Apple Group X as evidence for it. And so this is where the Apple Group X is found on the tree we saw before. And uh, it does say the Apple Group X is found in the Americas and is found in the old world as well. So no problem up to this point. And this is where Apple Group X sits on the detailed trees of the world. So um, there is an Apple Group X, but there is not an Apple Group X. Is that clear? Right? <laughs> so you notice on the, on the um, right side of the screen, there are some IDs. And uh, every sub-branch of haplogroup X, every sub-lineage of haplogroup X is represented by TZDs, which are actually real people that have been tested, that have the mutation that you see listed there in blue and black that uh, help determine which sub-branch of haplogroup X you belong to. But we have not found a single individual in the world that has only the characteristics for haplogroup X means that uh, um, it's like uh, you're doing genealogy, you know your name, you know your parents' name, and then you don't know your paternal grandfather's name because your father was adopted. Well, it doesn't mean that your paternal grandfather never existed. It's just you don't know who it is. And the same thing is here. We know the Apple Group X existed in the past, but there is no one in the, in the world that carries the only the mutation that identified that group. So all we have are sub-branches or sub-lineages of haplogroup X. So the question we have to understand is, would the sub-lineages in the Americas correspond to the sub-lineages in the Middle East? And uh, can we tell something about the relationship of these two groups of people that carry those mutations? So that is uh, um, the question that we need to answer. So when you look at the general haplogroup X, meaning everyone that fit under haplogroup X, we find that we find them in America and in the Middle East and in the old world. And uh, scientists suggest that this is how the, the um, haplogroup X got to the new world, so through the Beringer Strait that has been in America for a long time, we're going to see that. But then Hartlanders say, well, you know, this is not correct, uh, you know, we... Uh, we find it in the Middle East, we find it in America, so that is Book of Mormon legacy. They came here with a ship, they came here in recent time, and that is the, um, the point that I like to clarify. And uh, I think this man uh, is one of those that help understand the issue. Kennewick man, man was found on the Columbia River uh, in the state of Washington in 1996, and very recently, a uh, full genome sequence was done on him. All autosomal DNA, Y chromosome, and mitochondrial DNA done. Uh, all the 3.2 billion bases sequence for him. And we learned a few interesting things on him. First of all, notice where he was found geographically, right? It is uh, closer to the Bering Strait migration, right? It's also carbon dated to 8,000 uh, eight to 9,000 years ago, which is before 6,000 years ago, right? So creationists will say, well, that does, didn't happen. Well, I just showed to you, it could have happened. You know, the church is okay with that, uh, so we should, too, leave that door open. But when we look at the tree, and every single 
blue square, light blue and, and dark blue square you see there, those are all the Native Americans that have been found and tested in the scientific literature belonging to the sub-lineage called X2A, which is only found in America. It's found nowhere else in the world, only in America, mostly in the Great Lakes area. But here where you put the Kennewick man, is ancestral to every line that uh, um, are found uh, in, uh, in the America. So when you look at uh, X2A today, every, they have all additional mutation because they're more recent. But when we go back 9,000 years ago, there was a pure X2A with no additional mutation that sits on the top of the tree. He is ancestral, or the people that were with, me, with him, because he's a man, he could have not passed that, but the people that were with him are the ancestors of the X2As that is found in the Great Lakes area. That's where he come from. Not Book of Mormon people, but the group of people that came with the Kennewick men, um, the ancestor of the Kennewick men. So four reasons why X2A cannot be used to support Book of Mormon migration. Use anything else, but when you use DNA, you're, making, um, you, you're teaching science incorrectly. Okay? I'm not going to use other words. But you, you're, you're not being fully honest or you don't fully understand uh, how that works. So X2A is found exclusively in America. It's not found in the Middle East. There are other branches of X2 that are found in the Middle East. X2B, X2C, X2D, but no X2A. So, uh, and, and we don't have... We don't have the Middle Eastern branches in the Americas, and we don't have the American branches in the Middle East. They're cousins with each other. They had their own development or um, philo phylogeny or branches of the tree. One is not above the other, which means that uh, um, the, the lineages in the Middle East are not the ancestor of the one of America, and the one in America is not the ancestor of the one in the Middle East. Uh, it's the missing link of the mitochondrial DNA X2A, you know, if you want to use a, a um, you know, human evolution term, you know, the missing link. Um, the date, because we can date this mutation, considerably predate Book of Mormon events. So it places uh, X2A in America several thousand years before the arrival of Book of Mormon. And that's, we knew this, but when the Kennewick men came around, we learned four new things that are pretty much closing the subject at the moment with what we know about science. And first of all, as I show you, X, the Kennewick man stands on the top, is the ancestor of all the X2As in America. It's carbon dating 9,000 years ago. It's found geographically close to the Bering Strait, placing and supporting a Beringian expansion. And when they did this autosomal DNA, is now European, is now Old World. He has the same autosomal DNA of all the Native Americans. So he is a Native American, is now European or a Middle Eastern, and, uh, and uh, he has a mitochondrial DNA that uh, um, is the one that is being used for the, the Artlanders. And so I want to go on record to say X2A, mitochondrial DNA, as we know today, does not support um, the Great Lakes geography for the Book of Mormon, okay? And, um, and so I hope that's, uh, that, that is clear based on that. This is the concluding, uh, the article that is referenced now in the Gospel Topic essay is the concluding statement by these two researchers which I actually know personally and I was initially involved with the project and then uh, I just let them run with it because I didn't want to be, uh, people feel like I'm biased toward that, so just like, you know, do your own thing. But I'm the one that has published more X2A sequences than any other person or scientist that uh, uh, I know of. 
Um, if you do a Google research or, or a PubMed research, which is the National Library for Science, um, you find about five articles on X2A, and I, tr and I contributed to three of them. So I think I know something about the, be the, the, the behavior of this particular marker. But here is what I say. It is, of course, possible the genetic evidence of an ancient transatlantic migration event simply has not been found yet. Okay? We're not shutting all the doors, right? But as of today, should credible evidence of direct gene flow from an ancient Salutrian or Middle Eastern population, that is what they wrote, you know, they put that in parentheses, population be found within ancient Native American genomes, it will require the field to reassess the Beringian-only model of prehistoric Native American migration. However, no such evidence has been found, and the Beringian migration model remains the best interpretation of the genetic, archaeological, and paleoclimatic data to date with regard of this uh, uh, X-ray. I have no more time. I, w I was going to address a paper that uh, um, was brought to my attention a couple of days ago about uh, 38 Mayan skeletons, and um, um, I, I don't know really how to, to address that because we don't have the, 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 the time to do that. Um, let me just say this. Um, so there have been some critics of the church that have jumped on this, on this paper saying that there's further evidence that there is no Middle Eastern DNA in America and therefore the Book of Mormon is not true because these are skeletons that are found in, in the Mayas and they all have the mitochondrial DNA, the maternal DNA that is typical of Native Americans. But the point is uh, um, I actually wrote to the authors and I, and I asked them some background information on their research. And when you see a paper published, it's nice, polished, polish, peer review and everything, but you don't understand all the mess that went on to put that paper together. And unless you have published science in your life, you, you, don't know, you, you, know, uh, you know what I'm talking about if you have published scientific articles before. And um, it's like walking into a house of somebody and having a perfectly clean living room and you assume that the whole house is just nice and tidy like that, and then, you know, you ask, can, can, can I go to the bathroom? It's like, no, <laughs> go to the neighbors, right? Because uh, it's not clean, right? So we only see the papers published. We don't know a lot of things. One thing that caught my attention, I'm going to just say that, and forgive me, you know, we're not going to have questions for an um, answer for questions. We'll start a few, five minutes late, right? Um, uh, time for questions. Sorry, and, uh, and uh, there was one sentence in there that says, one sample did not work. So I, I, one of the questions I asked the author is like, why did this sample not work, right? Simple question. It's like, was it that the DNA was damaged, like it says on the article, or there were other issues about it? And, she, and, and then she said, the corresponding author told me, well, it, the DNA that turned out wasn't what we expected, okay? And I don't know what it is. She did not want to share it. I understand why, because uh, they might be using it for future publications, so you don't reveal all, all your secrets, right? That's how scientists strive. You know, you publish or you perish, right? And so, and so it's like, you know, did you try to include that in your publication? Because sometimes they, write, they, they, they include um, unusual data also in the publication. Other times they just dismiss it and they do the cleaning, right? This doesn't look like what we expected, so we're going to leave it out. And, and she say, well, we sent it in in the original publication, but the reviewer told us to remove it. 
right? So they took it out. And I'm dying to see what this <laughs> sample looked like, but she told me it, was not, it did not have the genetic characteristics of mitochondrial DNA, of native American mitochondrial DNA. I don't know what that means. It could mean nothing or anything. There are a lot of other reasons why this paper should not be interpreted the way that the critics have been in, are, are interpreting it. But this is just one simple example that not everything looks as perfect as uh, we read it, okay? There are some background stories that sometimes are worth. And most of these skeletons, by the way, are dated uh, between 800 and, and more recent years after Lehi arrival. So we're not even looking at the same thing. And again, we're making some, some assumption based on geographic location, time, um, how the Book of Mormon people uh, mix with locals, how soon did they kept uh, as an homogeneous population isolate, or did they mix with the, with the local natives, how soon did they happen. A lot of these things we don't know. And, and I want to cl close with one thing, because we... Um, no, with these things right here, two, two things. One is, this is Autosomal DNA, Nature 2017. Nature is the top-notch scientific journal. And uh, with Autosomal DNA, they're actually now considering possible uh, migrations that are not Beringian that uh, have happened maybe in more recent times uh, in the Pacific Ocean between South America and uh, Micronesia. Uh, one of these studies actually found Native American DNAs in the population of uh, Easter Island. Okay, so how did they get there? When? Did they go from America to Easter Island? Did they go from Easter Island to America? We don't know. You see that the arrows go, are bidirectional. You know, so there's still a lot of questions. We don't know. When they say DNA proves that there was no migrations to the America other than the Bering Straits. Like, there's so much things that we still don't understand. And... Um, I th I'm teaching Book of Mormon this year at BYU this summer, not this year, just this summer. Um, uh, that's why I'm here also um, in, in Utah. And uh, I'm teaching the first half of the Book of Mormon, and I'm, I'm getting a new appreciation for the small plates that Mormon decide to include. And we all think, you know, when Mormon says these are included for a wise purpose, we immediately think about Martin Harris and the 116 pages. I'm actually coming to understand personally that there is maybe a second wise purpose that has to do with DNA and, uh, and uh, something that Mormon would have not known. But every reference that we can read in the text that there were other people here are all from the small plates. You know, Second Nephi chapter 5 talks about Nephi's family following him, leaving the place, and others. Right? Who are these others? Jacob chapter 2. Jacob uh, admonished the Nephites for having too many wives and concubines. Right? Where are they getting them? You know, and uh, there is some understanding that maybe concubine, uh, based on the Old Testament uh, reading, could be somewhere that is not from your own um, ethnic group. Okay? You know, like uh, uh, Abram, um, what was her name? Agar? Yeah, she was, an, she was an Israelite, right? And so she's referred to as a concubine. And, uh, and then we have the Sherem approaching Jacob, you know, and being knowledgeable about the language and looking for an opportunity to meet with Jacob. I was like, wait a second, if he's from the same family group, right, how long does it take him to... So the, what I'm saying is that we're getting a lot of little information about his... Uh, uh, immediate uh, um, mixing or, or contact with the natives, and we get all of that from the small place. Wars with the Lamanites immediately, right there in Book of Omni, you know, already wars. And, and, and it takes us all the way to 150, and we don't know anything between uh, 
Nephi time, and basically, and we don't know anything between Nephi and Jacob and, uh, and Mosiah. You know, there are 350 years that we don't know anything, and yet all these things could have happened right in those years, and we don't know anything about that. So, you know, I have a really difficult time as a scientist, as a geneticist, as a, uh, as a religious educator, to put my testimony on, uh, on, on genetic evidence, the lack of or the presence of, uh, based on uh, my testimony of the Book of Mormon, based on DNA. You know, I, I much rather focus on other things because I think there are so many unknown uh, that we don't know and, and to decide your eternal destiny and how and your membership in the church based on all these unknown. Uh, to me, you're taking a huge risk. And, uh, and this is all I have to share. So sorry for going so long. As a bishop of Rome, doesn't that make you infallible? Of course. <laughs> Ask my wife. If so, doesn't that make you right on evolution? And I'm not going to answer that question. Okay? But, yeah, that's another. So how am I going to answer these other ones? Pick a couple. Just pick a couple. Ah, should I still do that? Uh, many points to sacrifice. Yeah, again, um, it says, you know, Second Nephi chapter 2, there are many points that refute evolution. You know, I'm referring you to, to what Ben just said, you know. Um, where does Second Nephi text come from? Brass plates. Brass plates are similar to the Old Testament, written maybe in a, in a slightly different language, maybe more, more information, more details. But again, you know, are we reading there as a scientific text? You know, what did Ben say? Is that how God is teaching us some principle, leaving a lot of the details out? I don't believe Second Nephi is uh, um, refutes evolution at all. Huh? Okay. What have you come to understand about Neanderthal and Lucy and other old discovery? And again, you know, could have been, could have been a human-like individual before. Um, Adam and Eve, and, and that's up to you to, to answer this question after the things that have been shared between what Ben has said, and he has written, he has written a lot more stuff in the books that he suggested, and, um, and also the statements of the church. So, yes, there could have been Neanderthals, there were Neanderthals. As of today, there is evidence that every one of us here with European origin carry about 2 to 4% of Neanderthal DNA in our genome. So not only Neanderthal existed, they are in your family tree. And, and this is the current knowledge that we have. Well, how we have that? Because we have full sequence um, genomic data for Neanderthal, and we have fully sequenced genomic data for Homo sapiens, and we found um, um, introgression of DNA unidirectional, coming from Neanderthal to Homo sapiens, and not going from Homo sapiens to Neanderthal. And one of the reasons that happened is that um, Neanderthals were genetically fit for their environment they lived in, which has been, uh, um, so they've been longer in Europe and living in those uh, um, climate condition and environment than Homo sapiens. So when Homo sapiens arrived, that's a theory, you know, we can, of course, we were not there to take pictures of what happened, but um, when, when Homo sapiens arrived, then uh, if uh, um, crossbreeding took place, um, their genes of the Neanderthal would have had a better chance to be 
become stabilized in future generations than, uh, than uh, the other way around. Then uh, looks like the Homo sapiens get rid of Neanderthals eventually out, um, outcom um, outcompeted. No. Uh, uh, you know, they, they were maybe better technology or other ways. And, uh, and then they become extinct. But we do have a, a genetic legacy of Neanderthals in Thank us. Thank you very much. Thank you.